0: This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Mowell, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Benjamin M. Friedman is the William Joseph Meyer Professor of Political Economy, and he's also the former chair of the Department of Economics at Harvard University. It was from Harvard he earned his Ph.D., and there he's had an active academic career in the field of economics and economic policy. He's the author of more than 150 academic articles, the author or editor of 12 books. His most recent book, Religion and the Rise of Capitalism, explores the crucial intersection between religious thinking and economics, even theology and economics, and deals with how religion shaped economic philosophy in the modern era. Religion and the Rise of Capitalism is an important work And it's the topic of my conversation with Professor Benjamin M. Friedman today. Professor Friedman, welcome to Thinking in Public.
1: Thank you for having me, I'm delighted to be with you.
0: I I found your book to be, uh, frankly, a surprise. And uh, I I try to uh, read a great deal of economic literature, but I haven't seen anything in this generation uh, by any major uh, economic theorist or economic historian, this really dealt with what you take as the central issue here in the title of your book, Religion and the Rise of Capitalism. Uh, it's a fascinating read, and it leads me to want to ask you at the onset, what led you to what had to be many, many years of prodigious research in order to uh, to tell this story? What interested you?
1: Dr. Bowler, I've always been interested in the origin of ideas. Uh, Why do ideas come up when they do, where they do, what's the motivation behind them, what's the prod? Uh, Look, I'm an economist. I did not come at this from the, and I think this may be what you're referring to. I'm an economist. I did not come at this project from the side of starting with religious thinking and trying to trace out its consequences i started from the side of wanting to know where my subject by which i mean modern western economics came from and uh, the more i looked at it the more i realized uh, that the religious thinking and what were new and hotly contended ideas in the english-speaking Protestant world in which people like Adam Smith and David Hume live, were very important spurs to the thinking of these people precisely about economics. And I think you're probably right that uh, this is unusual among economists. The, the, The book has a different interpretation. The usual story of where modern Western economics comes from is all about the secular enlightenment, and it isn't about religious thinking. Uh, But I eventually concluded the standard story is wrong and that these religious roots not only are important for where the subject came from, but also for where it's gone in the 250 years since.
0: Well, I appreciate you sharing that. Uh, I want to fast forward to something that's near the end of your book, but it's just one fact that uh, simply begs for an explanation. And frankly, Professor, uh, I had no idea of this until I read it in your book, but if you go to 1885 and uh, the the rather organized emergence of economics as a discipline with the formation of the uh, American Economic Association, uh, I believe you say that 23 of the 181 founding members were Protestant clergymen. Uh,
1: Yes, there was a very close relationship between the economists who founded our association which incidentally continues to be the flagship association for economists in the united states today i'm a member i would guess that every member of my uh, department at harvard is i would guess that every pretty much every member of the university of louisville's uh, economics department is a member Uh, and the people who created our association had very strong ties to the, especially to the Protestant clergy and the social gospel movement of that time. Many of these economists were people who had written articles and books with the word church in the title before they had ever written about economics. Some of them had intended to go into the clergy themselves before they changed their minds and went into economics. So it was very closely, uh, very closely connected to the Protestant uh, clergy, and many of them were quite explicit. Uh, uh, one, the probably the most, uh, uh, organizationally the most important founder, Richard Ely uh, wrote a book about Protestantism and uh, actually didn't call it Protestantism, Protestantism, he simply called it Christianity, it was just assumed that that meant Protestantism. But he wrote a book about Christianity and economics in the very year after he founded the association. So the connection goes right to the heart. But here we're at 1885. I think the connections go back way beyond that.
0: Yeah, I wanted to look to that because I think most Americans who have any imagination about economists would be shocked to know that when the, uh, the AEA was established at the end of the 19th century, that that many of its founding members are actually encouraging, and that, that requires some kind of explanation. And uh, if if I take your book, I, I see several parallel narratives. One of them is basically the emergence of economics as a science, especially in the United States, uh, as a discipline. Uh, the other is a, kind of an effective secularization of uh, of the, the intellectual field and uh, uh, economics as a part of that, although most of that takes place, frankly, after the uh, the end of your book and, and the narrative you tell. But I mean, there's, there's another theological story that's being told here, and to that I certainly want to turn. But I want to begin with, uh, with the groundwork that you lay, and frankly, uh, I think extremely well um, in a way that surprised me in the sense that you felt the need to do this. But uh, you're trying to explain, I think largely to a group of economists who, who otherwise might not think about this, that... The world into which modern economics uh, appeared, especially in the English-speaking world, was a theological world. And uh, you know, reading the way you write it, uh, you're writing it in, in such a way that, by the way, it's utterly convincing. But uh, it appeared to me that it's a point that you needed to convince readers of.
1: I think that's right. People like Smith and Hume lived in a world in which religion, which for them meant Protestantism, was both more central and more pervasive and a more multidimensional than anything we know in the uh, modern Western world today. All uh, educational institutions were uh, religious foundations. Incidentally, mine was as well. Harvard was a famously a Puritan foundation in the uh, original days, but also in the days of Smith and Hume, uh, all patronage uh, was uh, church patronage in Scotland because in 1707 the Scots had given up their status as an independent country they had no parliament left uh, but they had the church and also in those days people fought over uh, religious questions in a way that fortunately we don't today you know we uh, we 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 think of ours as a religiously contentious society but remember the 30 years' war on the continent had been bloodier uh, compared to the size of Europe's population than either World War I or World War II. The English Civil War was not between the Catholics and the Protestants. It was about what kind of Protestant people were supposed to be. That had been fought within Adam Smith's and David Hume's grandfathers' lifetimes. And uh, even something like the Highland Rebellion, you know, we. We read all these Walter Scott novels, and we think of the Highland Rebellion as this marvelously romantic uh, event with Bonnie Prince Charlie and all that. It was, again, about being Catholic or being Protestant and who the King of England was supposed to be. And uh, it was a bloody event, and some of it was fought right outside of Edinburgh when Adam Smith was 22 years old. So religion was all over the place in a very major way.
0: Well, and uh, as you concede in the book, uh, theological wars can become uh, military wars uh, in that era. And uh, you just recited several that, uh, if not almost entirely driven by theology, then uh, at least were largely uh, brought about
1: by a theological dispute. In in those days, these were issues that uh, men fought and died over. Now, early
0: in your book, you do something else, uh, laying some groundwork. And uh, I, I found this also very interesting. You deal with uh, the idea of worldview, a uh, uh, major concern of my own work. And, uh, and you do so very helpfully. You point to Eric Erickson talking about all thinking individuals having an all-inclusive conception of life or reality. You quote Gerald Holton talking about a thematic presupposition. The most interesting uh, portion of this section of your book is, is where you, you point out Einstein's own thinking about this. And, uh, and as, you, as you define Einstein, he argued that the worldview comes first, the, the scientific theories come subsequently. And uh, you're really laying the groundwork for the fact that for many of the people that you're writing about, certainly in the early years of uh, the period you cover, uh, the, the, the worldview came first, the economic theories grew out of the worldview.
1: You're right, Dr. Bowler. The challenge that I was taking up, and I felt it was important to do it right at the beginning of the book, is why these individuals, again, I point in particular to uh, Adam Smith and David Hume, why these people would have been so influenced by the religious thinking of their time. Uh, These men became international celebrities in their own lifetimes. And as a result, we know a lot biographically about them. And it would be absurd to claim that either of them uh, was a a religiously committed individual, self-consciously trying to bring religious beliefs to bear on his uh, professional work. Uh, My fellow economists and other historians of the period would just laugh me out of the room on something like that. David Hume for example, was an outspoken uh, opponent of any kind of organized religion. He used to refer to Church of England bishops as retainers to superstition. That was his phrase. He was never able to get a university appointment. Everybody understood that he was the leading figure of the Scottish Enlightenment, but he was never able to get a university appointment because Uh, He was, at the very least, an outspoken uh, agnostic, probably, I think he was an atheist, actually. Uh, Adam Smith was much more uh, private about his personal religious commitments. He was probably something uh, of the form of a deist, like the way we Americans would think of Benjamin Franklin from that era, or Thomas Jefferson. Uh, Smith there's no, no evidence of religious commitment for him. Uh, when he became a professor, uh, Smith asked to be exempted from the requirement to start every lecture with a prayer. Incidentally, his, his request was denied. <laughs> but, uh, so these were not religiously committed men, and there has to be a story, therefore, about why these religious ideas that were circulating all around them Uh, were influential. And the the conception that I take up is the one that I associate with these figures like Einstein and Eric Erickson and others about a worldview in Einstein's original uh, version of German, the Bild der Welt. It's the idea that the world as a whole is just too complicated a phenomenon. Nobody can think clearly about the world as a whole. And so what everybody does is to form in his or her mind a simplified, uh, what economists would call a model, what Einstein called a worldview, what one of the great economists who was my predecessor at Harvard, uh, Joseph Schumpeter called a vision Schumpeter called it vision with a capital V. The idea is that people have something in their minds. They don't just sit down to do their work uh, with a blank piece of paper or a blank slate uh, for their minds. And Einstein was very clear that, as he put it, scientific work comes out of pre-scientific thought. Uh, Schumpeter thought that economic analysis came from this pre-analytic vision. And all of these other figures thought the same thing. So this is my explanation for why even religious people like Adam Smith or anti-religious people like David Hume could have been influenced by religious thinking.
0: Yes, uh, and I appreciate how you lay that groundwork. And uh, as a Christian theologian, by the way, it makes perfect sense to me, theologically, that uh, no one begins uh, epistemologically in terms of knowledge from from nowhere everyone has to begin somewhere and uh, the way i put it is uh, is similar and that is that uh, we all inhabit an intellectual house and it's never totally vacant there's some furniture in the house uh, and uh, whether we recognize it or not that furniture has a great deal to do with our understanding of reality and the furnishings of the intellectual house of uh, edinburgh for example uh, in the 18th century would have been explicitly Christian, such that the culture was Christian, even if the individuals were uh, some form of uh, unbeliever, even to what would then have been called an infidel. Um, But that also raises another question, and that is, in the the totality of the intellectual flow here, uh, I'm going to take Peter Gay's argument that there wasn't an Enlightenment, there were Enlightenments uh, summarized as the Enlightenment. The Scottish Enlightenment was a bit different uh, than what took place elsewhere. And uh, at least one of, what, uh, one of the generalizations made about the Enlightenment in Edinburgh is that even though it, uh, it was uh, an emphasis upon rationality, uh, it was never as radical a form of, uh, of rationalism as would have been the case on the continent. Uh, Edinburgh itself is just a fascinating place during this era. The emergence of so many ideas, the coffeehouse culture, the, uh, the literary societies, it had to have been a fascinating place to live.
1: I agree. I think I personally would have enjoyed it enormously. But to come back to the theme that you've been getting at, and I'm absolutely agreeing with on the basis of uh, my work, religion was integrated into this intellectual life. Uh, to take one example, uh, you, you mentioned all of these literary societies and dining societies, and part of the intellectual life of Edinburgh and Glasgow at that time. Uh, Both Adam Smith and David Hume uh, were members, original members of the most distinguished of these dining clubs called the Select Society. Uh, One of the facts that I came across that quite interested me is that of the 31 original members, again, including Smith and including Hume, five of the 31 were, uh, were Church of Scotland clergymen. And that included this very interesting figure who was their, uh, their close friend, uh, William Robertson, who was simultaneously the head of the church. He was the moderator of the Church of Scotland General Assembly. And at the same time, Robertson was the principal, in our language, the president of the University of Edinburgh. Well, think about that a moment. That would That would be as if the president of my university, Larry Backow, were simultaneously the president of Harvard and also the head of the Central Conference of American Rabbis. Well, he's not, or it's as if his predecessor, Drew Faust, had been president of Harvard and head of the, you know, presiding bishop over the Episcopalian Church in the United States. Well, she's, she she wasn't, uh, but Robertson had both of those titles simultaneously. So it was, it was a very different world from ours from the perspective of the integration of religion and religious thinking into the intellectual life of the time.
0: Yeah, so I appreciate the fact, and, and here I'm kind of going ahead of myself in the conversation, but I appreciate how much work you put into uh, dealing with people, uh, even such as Francis Whelan, uh, who was the, the president of Brown. And, and just to connect the dots, this institution I serve, founded in 1859. Well, it was explicitly modeled after Princeton from the original documents of Princeton, but with the uh, synthesis of Brown. Uh, James Pettigrew Boyce, who was the founder of this institution, was a graduate of Princeton, but before that, he was the prize student of Francis Wayland at at Brown. And uh, I have in my office Dr. Boyce's copies of Wayland's books that he had as a student at Brown, and he was. The most prominent uh, Baptist uh, layman of his age and was the president of, of Brown University, teaching moral philosophy as presidents did at the time.
1: Yes. And when you, know, when you say you have in your office a copy of Dr. Whalen's book, I'm guessing you mean the Moral Philosophy book, uh, which was the best selling uh, moral philosophy text used at that time in the United States. But it's important to point out that Whalen was also an economist. And he also wrote, just a few years later, uh, what turned out to be the best-selling economics textbook in the United States before the Civil War. The Moral Philosophy book came out, I think, in 1835. The uh, economics book came out in something like 1837. And from then until the end of the Civil War, it was the best-selling textbook in economics. Uh, Wayland was very much an economist and very interesting uh, character. Uh, He was an abolitionist, uh, famously so. Uh, He was a free trader, famously so. And as a Baptist clergyman, uh, he anchored those beliefs in his religious uh, thinking. So unlike Smith and Hume, uh, in when we get to Wayland, here's somebody who really was a religiously committed individual, and uh, in Wayland's economics textbook, for example, he goes on at great length about how uh, it would be wrong to impose tariffs in the United States. Remember, the tariff issue was the leading economic issue in the first half of the 18th century, a 17th, uh, 19th century, other than the other than slavery. And he goes on at great length about how it would be wrong to impose. Uh, tariffs on imports because God wanted nations to trade with one another in order to promote amity among nations, and his story was in part that that's why God created the oceans. Uh, By this time, everybody understood that sea travel was a lot uh, more efficient and cheaper than land travel, and so the reason the oceans were there, according to uh, Pastor Whelan, uh, was precisely to facilitate trade among nations. So his was a very religiously anchored uh, argument. And of course, by virtue of being president at Brown, we know he, w- he was definitely a Baptist minister. He started his career here in Boston at a Baptist church and then quickly moved to Brown, where he became the great figure at uh, Brown in the 19th century.
0: Well, he was the personal model, for the first president of of this institution's uh, understanding of of a an academic leadership role, and so there's a there's a genetic tie uh, there. And the other thing is that I would just add to what you say uh, is that uh, Wayland and his colleagues would also have tied the existence of the oceans and the ability to have commerce and uh, and uh, shipping and. Exploration it was just tied to missions, so mean theology is still very much there. Uh, economics and missions, just as economic and social betterment and the social gospel, were were tied very much together in mutual interest.
1: Yes, that and that idea is go, goes back much further, and I give examples of um, people like Bishop Butler, uh, Dean Tucker. These are uh, um, Anglican religious figures in the first half of the 18th century. So now. We're 100 years before Wayland, and we're in England instead of uh, in the United States. But the idea that trade is useful in part because it promotes uh, missions and therefore the spread of proper religion to the rest of the world was very much a part of the the thinking of some people at this time.
0: Now, uh, the surprising turn in your book, uh, certainly for a theologian reading the book, is uh is, is where you you follow through a great deal of preliminary material, which is all fascinating and uh, takes us back to uh well almost the end of the Tudor age and certainly through uh, uh, the uh, the restoration later and uh what what, what was as you will say uh, kind of the decline of orthodox uh, Calvinism as the official theology of uh, of the Anglosphere. and uh and yet you you point to modern economics, and, and you define it in the, the title you wrote as capitalism, as emerging from a great theological shift that was antecedent to it. And, and that is the decline of belief in predestination in particular. Now, you know, these days, it's, it's, it's hard to find many people in America who want to have any kind of theological discussion, but you really jumped in the deep end of the pool here. Uh, and not only that, you're really making an argument that's kind of counter to the way the, uh, the Protestant tradition had been understood as uh, affecting the, uh, the world of economics, both in terms of the economy and in terms of the study of it. So I'd really invite you to kind of lay that out, just well, in terms uh, of the summary.
1: You know, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm glad to do that. I'm guessing that what you are referring to is Max Weber's great book called The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. Uh, Weber's book and mine are different in a variety of respects, so much so that I think of mine as Weber upside down, and I'll be explicit why. Uh, The first difference is that Weber was looking at an earlier century. Weber was primarily looking at the 17th century when belief in predestination was at its, uh, not at its height, but pretty strong, and uh, was looking, in effect, Weber kept thinking about all of these Puritans in Massachusetts walking around uh, suffering what he called existential anxiety about whether they were among the elect, and therefore desperate to have external signs They knew it couldn't be causal, but they were looking for external signs of whether they were among the elect. And they persuaded themselves, this is Weber's story, they persuaded themselves that if they were industrious and worked diligently at their calling, if they saved their money, if instead of uh, living uh luxuriously they plowed their money back into their businesses they were thrifty all of these would be comforting to them because they were external signs now that was a story about people's behavior according to weber and it's a story mostly about the 17th century Uh, i'm interested in the 18th century because that's when smith and hume and others of that era gave us modern Western economics, at least in its beginnings. And also I'm interested not in the behavior of ordinary individuals as Weber was, I'm interested in the thinking of the intellectual elites of the time. So the two key differences I would point to is that Weber was looking at a period when a belief in predestination was at near its height, And I'm looking at the period when that's going away. And second, he's looking at the behavior of ordinary individuals. I'm looking at the thinking of the intellectual elites. And what I uh, argue um, enabled Smith and Hume to come to their conclusions, and here I point especially to Smith because I'm talking now about the substance of his great book, The Wealth of Nations. What I think enabled him to Uh, come to these insights was a worldview based on the more expansive notion of the opportunities and possibilities for human choice, human action, human agency that came out of the movement away from belief in predestination. I think if he had still been laboring under the idea that there was nothing a person could do, to affect his or her salvation, because that decision had been made not only before the person was born, but before the world had even been created, quoting you know, now from the Westminster Confession. Um, that doesn't leave a lot of room for thinking that people can make important and worthwhile things happen uh, by what they choose uh, to do. And by contrast, by the time we get to Smith and the whole A new movement is toward believing that, yes, people can uh, affect their salvation, to use the words of John Tillotson, who was the first Archbishop of Canterbury appointed after the Inglorious Revolution in England in 1688. Uh, People are able to cooperate, to cooperate with God in effecting their salvation. Uh, there a secularization of that idea is that people are able to do good in the world. People are able to tell right from wrong. People are able, just through their innate, uh, inborn nature, what John Locke called the the candle of the Lord that's there if we are only willing to make use of it. People are able to make good things happen and Smith was looking at the economy, and he said, well, how is it that people just acting on their own instincts can take actions which make other people so much better off? I think it's an idea that came to him because he lived in this world of pushback and movement away from predestinarian belief.
0: Well, you're talking to a fossil here uh, because I am an Orthodox Calvinist and uh, Augustinian and uh, very much a believer in predestination. And uh, and a theologian. And so I'm just going to speak back to you as a theologian from inside this world, and that is that uh, I think predestination and the sovereignty of God are often understood from the outside as a form of determinism or fatalism, whereas in in our understanding, it's rooted in a personal God, not an impersonal deity, who relates to us in personal terms. And so there's more to it than fatalism or uh, some kind of just mere determinism. but, but still, there, there is no doubt that when you're talking about uh, uh, unconditional election, um, you, you are talking about a divine decree that is unchanging and unchangeable. Um, but the, it's also interesting that if you go back to the 16th century and the 17th century, the, the great debate in many ways between the Protestants and the Catholics, and especially as you consider Luther and Calvin, was over the issue of assurance. And, and it was the reformers who argued for the, the, uh, the reality of assurance of salvation. And it was the Roman Catholic Church that the Council of Trent identified that as among the chief errors of the Reformation, which, which they condemned. So when I first read Weber as a doctoral student, uh, I'm, I'm reading him and, and I'm thinking he's not entirely wrong. Where he's right is that if you look at the economies of historically Protestant Europe and the economies of historically Catholic Europe, you're looking at very different. Uh, economic patterns. and And Weber talked about the survival of ideas like thrift and uh, and investment and uh, patience and uh, th- those Protestant virtues uh, as being a part of that work ethic. So I don't believe he was entirely wrong. Um, i j- I just have to say, as a theologian, I don't think he got the internal working. And of course, he was in an intellectual milieu in the nineteenth century in particular, in which there wasn't a whole lot of understanding of Orthodox Calvinism in his circles. Uh I appreciate the fact that you care ab- about this. Uh and I'll, I'll let you respond. That, but uh but I, I want to say that I I I think you've overstressed the predestination issue, but you really made me think about it.
1: Well, that's uh interesting mm-hmm. I'll look now in terms of what you were just talking about, Dr. Mm-hmm. Moeller. My uh, my book is not much about the Catholics versus the Protestants. Right. I know I, I know a li- yeah. I know a little about that, uh, of course. Uh, mm-hmm. But that's not what the book is about, because for purposes of the era that I'm looking at, again, to go back to our earlier part of our conversation, the question is, what formed the world view or the vision right. that was in Smith's and Hume's mind? The debate between the Catholics and the Protestants was history by that time. That that's right. just isn't what—
0: My that, purpose in raising it is to say that the— the catholics recognize that on the protestant side there was an emphasis on assurance that they denied and and the point is i think weber misses that uh this, this existential anxiety you know etc not that there isn't any except i i think he made more of that than is theologically justifiable i understand what you're doing and and i want to throw this to you and ask ask you a different question because your book made me think about these issues in a way that uh, that no other previous book had, and that, that, that's a privilege, by the way. I thank you for it, well, I and think, I just I, want to thank I, you. I for, feel,
1: thank, thank you for telling me. I feel honored in that case.
0: Well, that, that's, that's, that's I, I think, what an author hopes for, and I think you really accomplished it, and frankly, I think people are going to be talking about this book for a very,
1: very long time. Um, well, I, I hope so. Now, just to, again, to finish off the previous thought, Vapor, in contrast to what I'm doing, Weber was very interesting. interested in the Catholics versus the Protestants. Uh, Weber, uh, Weber, got into his, Weber was a German sociologist. He got into his uh, subject because he had been hired to do a study of why the occupational structure in East Prussia changed when a political change took place and lots of Catholic Poles moved westward into East Prussia. And so what originally started his thinking is that he had been commissioned to think about how this movement of Catholic Poles into what had been a Protestant area changed the occupational structure. But then he started thinking not only, as you say, about the occupational differences between the north of europe and the south of europe but even the occupational differences within his own country because the north of germany was then and is still predominantly protestant whereas by the time we get down to bavaria there's a lot greater catholic presence so even just looking at his own country and then he expanded that Further to be about Europe as a whole, he very much was interested in the Catholic thought versus Protestant thought. It, it 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 seemed to me to matter less for my story. Uh, I'm, there were, of course, Catholics present in Edinburgh in the 1750s and 1760s, but it's not not obvious that Smith and Hume interacted with them very much.
0: As uh, as I have read Adam Smith, and, uh, and read a great deal, frankly, uh, one of the questions that's come to me is uh, is whether Smith is trying to explain economic operations as if God does not exist. And I hope that makes some sense. But it, you know, that, that, to me, is one of the signs of, uh, of, of a certain enlightenment uh, realization here. So there's a sense in which I wonder if the invisible hand that uh, that Adam Smith talks about that is is anthropomorphic in terms of uh, economic operation uh is kind of a replacement for a sovereign god, and that 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 points to at least my, my theological kind of recalibration of uh, of thinking in 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 your book, which is uh I, I'm not convinced that it that the doctrine of predestination is the pivot in, in itself. But to me, as a theologian, it's the larger question of the uh, existence of a robust theism that includes any claim of divine sovereignty and divine intervention. So does Adam Smith give us a way of understanding the economy that actually makes belief in God somewhat unnecessary, or at least in the strong theism of predestination, the orthodox understanding of providence, divine interventionism?
1: I suppose the question that would then, you'd have to figure out, is where human nature came from. Uh, Smith sees humans as endowed with uh, various uh, characteristics. In his first book, it was all about uh, humans' social feelings, their sympathy, desire for fellow feeling among men. In the second book, it's all about the desire to improve our standard of living. In The Wealth of Nations, he has this marvelous uh, passage in which he says that the, uh, the desire to better our condition is the way he puts it, to better our condition comes with us from the womb and stays with us till the grave and in between there's scarcely a moment when it isn't acting on us. Now the question then is where do these uh, inborn human uh, characteristics come from? Where does human sympathy come from in the uh, first book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments? Where does the desire to better our condition come from in the second book? He does not say he do, he he does not say in the first book he sometimes talks about nature endowing uh people with these uh traits he sometimes refers to the author of nature in a capital a on author so you could it's it's easy to suppose that he's uh, referring to God, but he's very careful. He does not say. But importantly, I would think also for purposes of your question, there's nothing that denies that these are uh, God-given uh, characteristics of human beings. And so if a person of a strong theistic bent wants to read smith by saying yes smith points out that all humans are born with these innate characteristics and of course they're born with them uh, because uh, they uh, because god gave it to them the text absolutely is consistent with that there's nothing nothing there at all to uh, to preclude it Now, uh, if you want to make that argument, another uh, route to doing it is to compare Smith and Newton. Uh, What Smith and Hume were trying to do uh, in their work was to create a science of man, which was comparable to what Newton had done three quarters of a century earlier for the physical uh, world. And Newton was very clear that he saw his work as an element of natural theology. Newton uh, wrote that he wanted his book, talking about the great book, the Principia Mathematica, published in 1687. Newton was clear he wanted people to read his book in order to understand the glory of God, that God had created the universe according to these principles, and by studying the universe. He had learned about the uh, system, the mechanism that God had instilled, and he hoped that young men, he didn't refer to young women, that's an aspect of the time, but he hoped that young young men would be educated through his book to understand uh, the Lord's uh, Lord's glory. Well, uh, Smith doesn't say anything like that, but Smith, in other respects, was very much modeling himself after Newton. And so if you wanted to pursue that kind of theistic interpretation of what Smith uh, was doing, uh, I'd say the analogy to Newton would be very supportive.
0: Yes. Um, the little footnote here, there were Dutch thinkers in the, uh, at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. Abraham Kuyper would be one of them. Uh, Herman Beving would be another. And uh, I'm very influenced by Bavinck in particular, and uh, you know, thinking about the fact that at some point, um, arguments are noteworthy for the fact that God is not necessary. It's not that God's denied. It's not that God's completely absent. It's just God's not necessary, and uh, that, that's the sense in which I mean, uh, and I, I could document this in uh, in English speaking thought in so many other areas. It's it's it, the difference between the 18th and the 19th century. Is that by the end of the 19th century have organized unbelief in a way that was rare. It was it was not impossible, but it was rare in the 18th century. Uh, but everything began to change. Speaking of everything changing, I have to tell you, my favorite part of your book is not the beginning, but the end, uh, the the second half. And, and to that I'd like to turn because you really are then dealing with uh, you're dealing with the American context and what you see is two rival gospels and. Uh, and, and here, I, again, I just want to give you credit uh, for uh, such deep investment and understanding. One foot no here. When you do a predestination, thank you for rooting it, not in John Calvin, uh, but in uh, Augustine and the Augustinian tradition. And uh, so thank you for uh, uh, not doing a shortcut there. Um, yeah, well, but you deal I, with oh.
1: Augustine, Augustine and behind that, Paul's letter to the Romans. Uh,
0: absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, uh, to that, I can always say amen. You know, uh, but Calvin uh, did yeah. not make this
1: up out of whole cloth. No, and and and
0: frankly, didn't believe he was innovating in the slightest. Uh, and uh, and by the way, people people talk about Calvin as and and without recognizing that Augustine, he often refers to him as the blessed Augustine, is uh, is actually uh, quoted more than any other source than Scripture. So it, you're looking at what they saw as a continuation of 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 a of a biblical truth here. Um, fast forwarding into the uh, the nineteenth century just for sake of time. And uh, here you're looking at the emergence of what would become economics as, as we know it, as a discipline in the United States. And you make two points I want to really come back to. But uh, you tell a theological story there too, and it involves these eventually these two rival uh, gospels, the Gospel of wealth and the social gospel. And uh, you've done really good work there in terms of even the the positions on the millennium and eschatology. But I want to back off and just ask you to Tell what you think is most important about uh, about your argument at that point in the book.
1: I think this is an interesting case in which the religious thinking is reacting to the economics. Uh, I should say right up front that economists, including me, are very comfortable with the notion of two-way causation. Uh, most of my book is about the way in which religious thinking affected economic thinking. Uh, That's what I set out to do. But uh, I talk from time to time about how economic thinking affected uh, religious thinking. And I think this is an interesting case in point. Uh, By the time uh, our predecessors got to the 1880s, The American economy was uh, growing at its fastest rate ever, more than 3% a year rise in the average standard of living. This was uh, pretty much unprecedented. This was the high age of American industrialization. But by the time they got to the 1880s, people started to observe that lots of Americans were, were being left behind. Uh, uh, I don't make a thing of it in this book. I talked about it in my previous uh, book. One of the most startling uh, were economic works of that time was a work that I think came out in 1879 by the American economist Henry George with the title Progress and Poverty. Well, we don't react much in today, but in that time, the whole notion of thinking of progress and poverty going together that was startling. People thought if the economy was making progress, it was going to eliminate poverty. And what they were learning was that it didn't. Well, the question then was what uh, what were the Protestant clergy supposed to do about this? And some thought nothing. Some thought the problem either didn't matter. Dwight Moody thought the Protestant clergy should go about saving souls and leave the uh, economy to itself. Uh, But there were others, I think of Washington Gladden, I think of Walter Rauschenbusch, I think of Josiah Strong, who strongly thought that there should be some national program to eradicate poverty, or at least to alleviate it, in a way that the economy didn't seem to be doing on its own. And interestingly, they thought the Protestant churches Should take the leadership in pushing for and helping to design uh, this program. They they knew they couldn't, uh, they didn't have the uh, tools to design the program themselves. That's why they were so supportive of founding the American Economic Association. But they did not want the Protestant churches to stand apart. They thought the leadership, the inspiration, the energy, for this nationwide movement should come from uh, the Protestant churches, and this is what evolved into the social gospel movement, which then after the turn of the uh, 20th century eventually turned into the uh, Federal Council of Churches, which is still here today, although the first initial is now an end. I think it's now the right. National, National Council of Churches. But this is this is where all that came from. Right.
0: Well, again, I appreciate the fact you give so much attention to these issues. Uh, the 19th century was the great century of theological transition, uh, perhaps equal by the 20th century as a matter of fact. But uh, but the 19th century, the, whether you're Karl Barth or Gresham Machen, and you mentioned Machen in your book, by the way. I do, yes, uh, you would have Very thought interesting that interesting figure. Absolutely, uh, portrait of him in my in my uh, study. Uh, but it, it, I, either of those figures, or Harry Merson Fosdick you also mentioned on the, on the other theological extreme, they all would have agreed that the 19th century raised inescapable questions that would have to be answered, and they were trying to answer them. And, uh, but you're talking economically about these two different Gospels. The Gospels of Wealth, uh, the Gospel of Wealth was not just a prosperity theology. That was, there, were, there were those who would have articulated it, but it was, it was, uh, it was also about human flourishing in their own vision.
1: Oh, yes, it very much was. The key figures that I point to are people like uh, Henry Ward Beecher. This is, this is not the father who uh, created the Lane Theological. This is the son who was at Plymouth Congregational in Brooklyn. So Henry Ward Beecher, Russell Conwell, uh, who was at uh, the Baptist, Baptist Temple, Grace Baptist Church in Philadelphia. Uh, here in Boston, uh, uh, Bishop Lawrence, for example, uh, to a certain extent, uh, uh, Bishop Brooks. And these people, uh, in in effect, were echoing David Hume. Hume wrote an, a very famous essay, famous in his lifetime, but still today in 1741, uh, that I make rather a big deal of in the book, because I think it's very important for the history of economics, uh, arguing that Uh, progress in standard of living leads to moral and social and political progress so that uh, economics is not just a standalone thing that you aspire for on material grounds. And this is very much something that Hume gave to Smith uh, and, uh, uh, in fact, my, my previous book called The Moral Consequences of Economic Growth, is in this in effect a modern rendering of the hume 1741 essay well by the time we get to the 1880s and uh, people are observing the incredible economic uh, expansion associated with this age of high industrialization and not just high industrialization anywhere but in this marvelous place where the country has the whole continent to spread out over these figures like beecher and Conwell understood that uh, Hume was right and that uh, Beecher has all of these marvelous sermons about how the uh, continuing growth of the economy is going to improve the level of civilization, the way he put it, in American society, make Americans better people, make America a better place. So uh, you're right. It... it, it, It... People might confuse it with the prosperity gospel of today, right. but it wasn't that.
0: No, it's, it's certainly not, uh, not the same theological vision. It uh, may have some of the same practical effects. Uh, you know, by the way, a little footnote here from American church history, and, and this just might interest you. It kind of makes your point. Uh, you deal with the differences in eschatology as having economic—you uh, say it's a two-way street, but uh, nonetheless— uh, it certainly shapes one's worldview, and particularly the distinction between pre and post-millennialism. Um, but uh, among the pre-millennialists, this came down to matters of economics, too. And I'll tell you one little anecdote, and that is that there was a rivalry uh, of, of who was really the most premillennial institution between the Moody Bible Institute and the Bible Institute of Los Angeles. It would become Biola. And at one point, Biola takes a shot at Moody, as Moody, as a school, not really believing so much in the, the the imminence of the Lord's return because they built buildings of stone and brick. And uh, their point was, pre-millennialists don't build with stone and brick. All you need is a Quonset hut in Los Angeles. <laughs> so that's what I often raise it with students to say, you know, even in institutional competition, theology and economics can mix.
1: Yes, that's right. Well, I talked some about uh, pre- versus post-millennialism and i think of post-millennialism as interesting for economics because of the resonance between post-millennial theory and the theories of economic growth uh, Postmillennialism is a lot about uh, technological progress going back to well not jonathan edwards uh, himself although i think of edwards as a post but people like bellamy uh, following edwards and then many of these great figures in the 19th century are uh, uh, post-millennialists and they're thinking of uh, the uh, technological progress as raising raising living standards. And then uh, they didn't disagree with Hume about how this was making the world a better place. But in effect, they, they then went Hume one better because it wasn't just about how this was improving the moral and political and social culture of society. By doing that, they thought uh, they were helping to bring the uh, Second Coming uh, closer in time. And so in post-millennial thought, in a way that I as an economist found very interesting, uh, they believed that uh, efforts to improve the economics of the country uh, would, uh, had, had religious value. It, it was helping to bring the, bring the second coming and the millennium forward. So it, it gave a theological flavor to economic efforts in a way that I hadn't understood before.
0: It is interesting, by the way, that uh, postmillennialism really largely disappeared, not totally, but largely disappeared from the theological landscape in Protestantism uh, by the second half of the 20th century. It's, it's interesting that it is. Uh, I will not say it's experiencing a resurgence, but it is certainly uh, a reappearance of uh, among some. And uh, so again, that's another that's another issue for theological consideration. You know, under what circumstances does postmillennialism appear to be plausible again? Uh, but it is interesting that this arrival of uh, postmillennialism is not coming from. A position of Protestant dominance in the culture, but rather of, a, a, of something, a, a Protestant displacement. Uh, it's going to be interesting to watch. I'll just say that. Uh, I, I say there's a theologian who's not a post-millennialist, uh, but is a premillennialist. Uh, on page 350 of your book, you make a statement that I'm going to use and cite over and over again. Uh, You say this, as an intellectual discipline matures, its conceptual core normally becomes less subject to external influence from worldly events, from thinking in other areas of inquiry, uh, from the culture of the day. Fundamental thinking within a mature discipline more and more tends to follow its own momentum, while the role of such outside forces becomes increasingly a matter of application and method. It seems to me that that statement is a, a really apt summary of uh the secularization of disciplines, just speaking as a theologian, considering that you you know the union and synthesis of faith and reason in the medieval world as compared to the present, um, but it strikes me that that statement is uh, is really important, and i I'd like for you to expand on it a moment.
1: Well, in the interest of honesty, let me begin by not taking credit for it, because what I was doing was uh, paraphrasing possible, I was quoting, but at the very least, I was paraphrasing the idea of uh, Thomas Kuhn, one of our era's great historians of science, and uh, I draw on uh, Kuhn's thinking a a great deal, both at the beginning of the book and at the end. Uh, Kuhn uh, had very interesting things to say about the way in which a new discipline, an immature discipline, is very subject to uh, influence from outside in exactly the way that i'm arguing the scots and others of the uh, mid to late 18th century were when they gave us uh, ec- this economics was an infant discipline not just young infant uh, but then kuhn's idea is that as a discipline Uh, matures and gains, uh, I don't know if you think of it as gaining confidence, gaining uh, heft, gaining, uh, uh, well, maturity is his word, uh, then it progressively becomes less subject to influence from the outside in its fundamental uh, thinking. And the application that I make of that idea in economics is that if somebody were to ask me where I see the new influence of theology today in economic thinking, uh, I don't, uh, I'm not sure what I would point to. I mean, certain things are still there, as we've already discussed. uh, I think the movement away from predestinarian thinking opened the uh, way for a new and a more expansive uh, view of the opportunities for human agency—that's that's still there. That's what we have. We still have uh, economics is all about personal choice, personal action. I think if you scratch any economist, you're going to find a very benign, optimistic view of the human character, not like uh, Calvin's. Uh, utter depravity or anything like that, but I don't think there are any new theological uh, influences. By contrast, uh, and here the last chapter of the book is all about the influence of uh, religious thinking in America today on people's uh policy choices i mean after all the the lay public doesn't give a hoot about economic theory why should they they're interested in the world in which they live and economics is important to them and therefore to the extent that economics has something today to say about real choices in the society in which we live well they're going to pay attention to that and therefore uh, people in the lay public not uh, educated economists uh, are interested in the economic policy choices that we face. And what I do in the final chapter of the book is look at this interesting way in which people's economic policy ideas depend very much on their religious affiliation. I'm not sure that's anything uh, people would have anticipated uh, at the outset, but it sure happens to be true.
0: It does happen to be true. and Theologically, I think uh, I have an explanation for that. That's at least plausible. Uh, but uh, reading that section of your book, I, uh, just one additional uh, footnote here. Uh, it, it seems to me that uh, you mentioned Thomas Frank and you know, what what's wrong with Kansas, et cetera, that whole argument. Uh, and, and you do not do in your book what he did in his. And and that is, I think, basically to insinuate that people don't know what they really want. And uh, I, I don't think that's true. I, I, I don't I, think people I don't- are always...
1: I, I don't think that either. I think that's just wrong. Yes.
0: Uh, that, that That's helpful. I mean, people aren't always consistent, but I do think uh, they know what they want, and that includes voters in Kansas and, well, <laughs> people just about everywhere. Um, in response to your book, uh, Alan Wolf in The New York Times pointed out that just uh, what you just said, there's there's just not much engagement between the fields of economics and and theology today in the way that you so conclusively prove there was in the past. Uh, I, I, I want to go to a statement that was made in response to your book by David Skeel in the Wall Street Journal. And uh, David, by the way, is a friend of mine, a, a colleague of mine. Uh, he's professor of law at the uh, University of Pennsylvania. And, uh, and by the way, a, a, a Presbyterian layman who, who knows Presbyterian theology. Uh, but he, he responds by saying that you can sustain your thesis only by assuming, as Weber, Max Weber did that the uh, theology influenced even those who were uh weren't thinking about it and uh, i just want to say i think that's that's right in the sense that i think they were thinking theologically when they didn't know they were and i think your book really helps to to uh, explain that
1: yes yes uh, i have i haven't seen that uh, what what's his name Steele?
0: david skeel s k e e l yeah in the wall street journal yeah
1: i i, ha- I haven't i haven't seen yeah. that uh, review he,
0: he's a very fine man very keen thinker
1: I've seen that review but he, but yes. what he says is absolutely right but you see i think that was part of weber's uh, point as well that uh, weber did not want to people to think that back in the 17th century belief in predestination spurred all of this uh, behavior among believing Calvinist Puritans, and then once Puritanism faded, uh, Calvinism uh, was less uh, prevalent, uh, that the capitalist uh, instincts that had been bred into people went away. And the great sign of that is that, again, Weber was a sociologist, and uh, he has based his argument on what sociologists then and now called ideal types, and the great indication is that he chose as his ideal type not somebody like Jonathan Edwards, which would have been the natural, but Benjamin Franklin, and he chose Franklin precisely to make the point that you didn't have to be a conscious or self-conscious believer in order to have absorbed all of these Protestant ethic uh, principles. And again, that's exactly my argument in the book that uh, Smith and Hume, I think weren't, certainly Hume wasn't, but I don't think Smith uh, was a committed believer either, but you didn't have to be. These ideas were all around and it just it's just part of the, part of the culture. And I think that's very important because here we are today. We live in an America in which increasingly people, Uh, aren't Protestant. Uh, We have, uh, we've always had Catholics, we've always had Jews, but now we have Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, uh, have all sorts of things. But I think there is an American culture that has been shaped uh, by these lines of thought. And in the same way that Weber looked at Benjamin Franklin as his ideal type, I mean, I'm not going to do that because I'm not a a sociologist, but I, I would be happy to pick uh, economists uh, who have no religious uh, background uh, whatsoever, or pick one of my colleagues who's a Hindu, uh, but who's grown up in the United States and uh, use that as, as the example. So I, I, I think Mr. Steele got it exactly right.
0: Professor Friedman, it's been a privilege to have this conversation. I wanna thank you for your book. Thank you for taking theology seriously in a world that often does not. And uh, I'm gonna commend
1: your book to many. Thank you, Dr. Volga. I've enjoyed talking with you very much. This has been an honor for me to be here and I've enjoyed it as well. Thank you.
0: Many thanks to my guest, Professor Benjamin Friedman for thinking with me today. If you enjoyed today's episode of Thinking in Public, you'll find more than 150 of these conversations at albertmuller.com under the tab Thinking in Public. For more information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.